Matthew 16, uh, we pick up verse 21 just after G, uh, Peter has made his confession uh, that Jesus is the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then to 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, we'll pick up halfway through verse 5 and read down through verse 11. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, Amen. May God bless to us this readings from his holy words. Well, everybody knows here that we love to travel up to the Isle of Lewis and that we have a tremendous amount of respect for the people of the Isle of Lewis. And, uh, and over the years, they have been a real challenge to me personally. Not that they've said anything challenging to me, uh, but just the way they live, the way they talk, the, the different kinds of things that they encounter uh, has really challenged me. One of the things that's really challenged me is uh, the whole idea of who is a Christian. Because I'd always thought, uh, okay, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross uh, for your sins and that he rose from the dead, then you're a Christian. But actually, uh, they, they have a, a bit of a different understanding in that Christians are those who are really converted, or in the words of John 3, uh, who are genuinely born again. Uh, they're not just people who believe the stuff. I know people up on the Isle of Lewis, for example, who have been part of a church their entire life, who would say, yes, you know, they believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he rose bodily from the dead, they believe the Bible, uh, but they would tell you, I've not yet been converted. And, and I, I find that kind of strange. I'm thinking, what, 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 you're, not, you're not converted? You're not really a Christian? But you can see that, and you can see that in the quality of life. It really reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to get into the, heaven, into the kingdom. 
Now, there has to be some genuine kind of change on the inside that's brought about by surrendering your life to God through Jesus Christ and the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that still challenges me, and I'm praying about that, because I look around in London and I see a lot of churches that seem to affirm people in their seeking, the fact that they're coming forward, they're doing something, but maybe not really checking, are they, have they had a real transformation of life? Another area where uh, I really find a lot of encouragement and challenge uh, for the people, the Christians that we've met up there, is how they deal with the issue of suffering. And this is one of those areas where you see this, this whole conversion kind of experience, a real, a real sense of being born again, makes so much difference. Because we have seen so many people up there that are happy, they're joyful, uh, they really love Jesus, they're really walking with the Lord, but when we sit and hear their stories, their stories are filled with so much pain and so much suffering and so much difficulty, and yet none of them that I've heard, I'm sure some do, but none of them have complained about this. Instead, they have frequently talked about how God was walking with them through these times of real difficulty, through these times of real suffering. It's as if they've taken on board really what Jesus said, that no man is above his master, and that you know what happens to Jesus will happen to us, and how Jesus went, and he talked to the disciples openly, and he said, guys, these are the things that I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be abused, I'm going to be mistreated, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to have all these things happen to me, and ultimately I'm going to get crucified. Jesus understood that he was going to walk through suffering, and so often our response as Christians are a bit like the response of Peter, who says, oh, well, far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen. There should never be suffering. Suffering shouldn't occur. Suffering should not happen. And notice what Jesus said. He didn't say, oh, yeah, you know, Peter, you're right. After all, I am God's son, so I can avoid all this suffering. I'll just leapfrog to the, the empty tomb. He didn't say that. He said, get, me, get behind me, Satan. Because you are being a hindrance to me. Even Jesus found this whole attitude that, that there shouldn't be suffering, that we won't suffer, that we won't have a difficult time, as a hindrance to him. And certainly the folks up on the Isle of Lewis have been an encouragement to me in this, in how, not to say that suffering is okay, not to say that it's good, uh, but to know how God walks with us through suffering and for the people that we've encountered, the Christians we've talked to, and it's not only Christian leaders, it's people like yourselves in the pews that we've talked to consistently, they talk about how their faith has grown through suffering and how their faith has taken them through suffering. And the Lord this past week, he spoke something very profound to me as he was, as he was telling me, what to talk about today, he said this, a church with people who are not afraid to suffer cannot be defeated. A church with people who are not afraid to suffer cannot be defeated. We need this kind of faith. We need the faith that will take us through suffering as well as the faith that will help us grow through suffering. 
not the faith that the anti-faith that causes us to run away from suffering. Now, no one will say that suffering is good, and no one asks for suffering. In fact, Jesus teaches us not to ask for suffering. He says this, when he's teaching us how to pray, we often translate this, lead us not into temptation, but actually the translation says, lead me not into the time of real testing. I don't want to go through suffering. And I'm asking that God will keep me from suffering. But I know that when God takes me into suffering or I go into suffering, sometimes because of my own mistakes, uh, sometimes because of what the world is doing, I don't always know why it's happening. But I know when I go into suffering that it's God that's going to lead me through suffering. And I know that we have to have faith if we're going to get the benefit of suffering and at the same time survive suffering. Now remember what we said faith is. Christian faith is choosing to trust and to act often beyond our natural ability based on a true knowledge of God and God's ways founded in a relationship with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith is always based on a true knowledge of God and God's ways. And people who say that we'll not suffer or that Christians shouldn't suffer or that Christians will be above suffering or that if you're a Christian, uh, God won't you know, you know, allow you to suffer. You know, People who have that attitude don't have a true knowledge of God and God's ways. God himself chose to suffer so that we might have life. God himself subjected himself to suffering for our sin so that we would have life. God himself is no stranger to suffering. And we need to know this God and we need to know his ways in order to have to be able to choose to trust and to act on this basis. We have to be, as Peter says in the passage, firm in our faith. We have to be firm in our faith because it takes faith to suffer like Jesus suffered. It takes faith to suffer for Jesus. It takes faith to overcome the enemies of faith. It takes faith for us to persevere in the midst of suffering. It takes faith to resist the devil. So we must be firm in our faith so that we can be like Jesus. And we can go through the suffering and come out victorious. So how do we do that? Well, we get some insights in what Peter was writing here in his letter. His letter talks about suffering throughout. So Peter makes it very clear that suffering is not something unusual, that suffering is actually something quite usual, quite normal for a Christian, and might even be greater for a Christian, because oftentimes we suffer for doing the right thing. We suffer for doing good. So what is... Peter encouraged us with. I'd like to suggest four things here. First of all, peeper, peeper, <laughs> Peter reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace, favor to the humble, so we need to humble ourselves. The first thing, if we're to have this be firm in our faith that takes us through suffering and enables us to emerge on the other side, we have to humble ourselves, to choose to humble ourselves. 
To do that, we have to understand what Peter is talking about here in terms of pride. Peter is not really, I think, in this context, talking about the kind of pride that says, oh, I'm, I'm really good, I'm really great. I, I, I remember, uh, and I won't, I won't sing the song for you, but I remember one of my favorite funny songs back in the 1970s, a song sung by a guy named Mac Davis. Uh, it was called, Lord, to be, You're, It's Hard to Be Humble. And he says, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be one heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Now, that is not what Peter is talking about, I don't think, here. I think Peter is talking here about what, what you might call, what John might call, the pride of life. This kind of pride is the pride that thinks we're always right. You know, that my way is the right way. This kind of pride is the pride that thinks, oh, well, I don't have to go through what everybody else has to go through. This kind of pride thinks, well, I need to look out for my own needs. I, I need to take care of myself. This kind of pride says, I, you know, I want to do it things my way, and, and I'm, not, I'm going to resist any, any kind of other way. This kind of pride thinks, I can, I can be a good Christian by myself. I can be a good Christian on my own. And this kind of pride is anathema to faith. It's deadly to faith. It will kill your faith. So we have to refuse to isolate ourselves from other believers. That's a serious issue of pride. And I see it all the time. People who don't like you know, other people in the church. And what do they do? They run away. How proud is that? Now, it's just like somebody once said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Now, we need other believers. We have to discern soulish things from spiritual things. I mean, we saw this this last week. Uh, the Ravellos and, and, uh, and Karen and I, we were at a conference and there were a few times that people were ministering, and it really, it didn't feel like a godly thing. It didn't feel like flowing with the Spirit. Although, you know, they're talking spiritual stuff, but we felt like it was more the movement of people and the desires of people than the movement of the Spirit of God. Unless we think, oh, that's really terrible, and, and we would never do that, don't be deceived, because we do that all the time. We do that all the time. We need to distinguish presumption from obedience. There are many times presumption is thinking, well, because this is what the thought that's in my mind, this must be God's will. And just because an idea comes into your mind doesn't mean that it's the will of God, even if it's a good idea or a Christian idea. And a lot of times we have these ideas that pop up that are not really from God, they're not bad things, you know, they, we're wanting the best, we want to do the best kind of thing, but it's not really from God, it's more part of our imagination, but instead of checking in with God and with others to see if it's really from the Lord, we plunge ahead and do what we think we should be doing. And that's presumption, that's not obedience, and that's a focus of pride. So we must choose to humble ourselves, to recognize our need for one another, and recognize our need for God, recognize our need to be together, and recognize our utter dependence on the strength that God provides for us, especially as we go through a time of suffering or difficulty. Because I've seen Christians, time after time, prolong their suffering 
through pride. Whenever we think we can do it ourselves, make it on our own, we will often prolong our suffering rather than humbling ourselves and saying, God, I need you. So I think that's the first thing and the big thing that that Peter is emphasizing here. If we are to stand firm in our faith, we have to humble ourselves and embrace and practice humility. I think a second thing that Peter would tell us here is that we need to be alert for the enemies of faith and resist those enemies of faith. And there's a number of enemies of faith that Peter mentions or alludes to, not only in this text perhaps, but throughout, uh, throughout this letter. I mean, one that I've already mentioned is this tendency to isolate ourselves. Now, notice what Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. His, his expectation is that as Christians, we will be sticking together. One of my favorite quotes from Benjamin Franklin back in the Revolutionary War, sorry if you're British and that's kind of a sore subject for you, uh, was uh, he said to the, the other delegates of the Continental Congress, he said, gentlemen, we must hang together or we most assuredly will hang separately. And it's absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Another enemy of our faith is a big one here Peter talks about is anxiety. Anxiety is really prevalent in our society today and it is easy for us to get caught up with anxiety, this disturbing sense of unease because of something uncertain. It's really easy to get caught up in that and when we embrace anxiety, we release faith. You cannot hold both anxiety and faith together. They're mutually exclusive. Another one, another enemy of faith is the fear of rejection or the fear of people is a big enemy of faith that many people struggle with. Uh, Another great enemy of our faith is thinking that we are alone in our suffering. It's interesting here that Peter is encouraging the guys and says, listen, you know, know that your suffering is being experienced by Christians all around the world. As soon as we think that somehow we're singled out or, or we're different than everybody else or we're suffering more than everybody else, that will begin to undermine our faith. And we need to understand we have a solidarity in our suffering with all of our brothers and sisters around the globe who are suffering as well, many of whom are suffering much more deeply and fully than we are. Another enemy of faith is this misunderstanding of suffering that I talked about earlier. Many people think that If you suffer, that must mean you don't have faith. Or that if you suffer, that somehow you've done something wrong, that God is punishing you. And these things are not true. And if we misunderstand suffering, then oftentimes it will undermine our faith. A final enemy of faith here is what I call capitulation. In other words, giving in and giving up. So many times when we face suffering and difficulty, we quit. But I tell you, I have learned something over the years. If you want to have genuine community in a church, people will have to go through a season where you're offended by other people and you don't like other people that you're worshiping with and that you have some kind of conflict with other people. And if you don't go through a time of conflict and struggling and difficulty, you'll never get to the depths of real community. Many times we think that community shouldn't have conflict or difficulty, but there's nothing biblical about that. 
Actually, to get to the depths of intimacy in community, you have to go through times of conflict and difficulty with one another. You have to go through times of disagreement and misunderstanding. And once you go through them and you stick together, you refuse to give up, you refuse to give in, that's at the point where you have an unbreakable community. So that's the second thing. We've got to know, recognize these enemies of faith when they start popping up and actively resist them, pray against them, worship, do whatever we can to break them. Then third, we need to have a clear mind and beware some common distortions, particularly about the devil and about God. But we need to be clear-minded. And this is why the Bible is so important. And when we're talking about faith, it has to be based on a true knowledge of God and his ways. Well, where do you find the true knowledge of God and God's ways? You find it in the scriptures. And so we have to be searching the scriptures and certainly resist some very common distortions that will destroy our faith. The first distortion is making the devil too big. A lot of times, people make the devil too big. They make him too powerful. Peter says he's like a roaring lion that goes around seeking someone to devour. Do you know how lions work? The lion roars to create fear to cause one member of the herd to run away or to cause the herd to run away from the weakest member of the herd so that he can pounce on the individual. Do you know a lion has no power over the herd? In fact, the herd can always defeat a lion and the lion will flee a herd. If you go on YouTube, you can find things uh, of where uh, lions have attacked uh, individuals, say like uh, a small water buffalo, and those big water buffaloes start coming in, and they start whomping on the lion, and the lion runs away. That's because the lion sounds fearsome, and if you're by yourself, he is fearsome, but if you stick together, he's not. And so often, we make the devil bigger than he actually is. And this happens in very subtle ways. I've heard many times people say, oh, well, this has been a great time of ministry, so you should expect to get slimed in the next couple of days and be put down and, and, and have this counterattack. And yes, the devil is going to have a counterattack, but you don't have to capitulate to it. You pray against it, and you stand strong in the Lord, and you stand strong with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and the devil cannot win. So we make the devil too big. The other problem, the other distortion, is we make God too small. And this is a bigger issue than making the devil too big. And it's interesting how Peter says three things about God in this passage that's so important to remember. He said, God's hand is mighty. In other words, God's powerful. God is all-powerful. He has a mighty hand. He has all the power that we need. The second thing he says is that at the right time, at the proper time, God will exalt you. God intends to exalt us at the right time. So often we go through suffering and we think, oh God, why are you putting me down? Why are you putting me down? It's not that God's putting us down. God intends to exalt us. But that will happen at the right time. And we have to believe that about God. And the third thing that 
Peter says, is that cast your anxieties on him because God cares for you. God really does care for us. His hand is mighty. He intends to exalt us. And he really does care for us. And we need to stand on the truth of that word. We need to believe what the Bible says is true about God. That's the key thing about faith. So we must keep a clear mind and beware our tendency to make the devil too big and God too small. Because if your devil's too big, it will kill your faith. And if God's too small, it will kill your faith. If you're to be firm in your faith, you need to have a proper understanding of who Satan is and who God is, and there's no real comparison between the two. They're not yin and yang. They're not heckle and jekyll, the cartoon birds. God is the supreme creator of the universe. Satan is nothing more than a created angelic being that one day will be thrown into the pit of hell for all eternity. And then number four. Number four, the fourth thing to be firm in our faith is we must choose to believe, really believe, really have faith. We must choose to believe God's intentions toward you as you go through suffering. And by the way, that's God's intentions toward us together. There's no intention here toward you individually, although you individually obviously benefit. So often when we read the word you in the Bible, uh, in English, we read the singular like he's talking about me. Almost every time the word you occurs in the New Testament, it's talking about all of us together. If you were in the southern parts of the United States, you'd say y'all. Y'all. If you're up in Minnesota, you'd say you guys. You guys is kind of the, the plural there. Uh, but it's us together, and we must believe God's intentions toward us together as we go through suffering. As we're in the midst of suffering, we must believe God's intentions. And this God is the God who is all grace, according to Peter, and who has called us to his eternal glory. And it's amazing how uh, Peter is contrasting here the brief time of suffering and the word eternal. So what are God's intentions toward you, toward us, together, that we all benefit individually and we all benefit corporately as we go through suffering? Paul, uh, Peter gives us four words. He says his intention first is to restore us. This means he's going to repair the situation. He's going to put it in order. He's going to set right the unfavorable circumstances that we find ourselves in. There have been so many times in my life when I've gone through extended periods of suffering and the Lord brings me out onto the other side and he restores me and brings me back to health and to wholeness. And I know one day I might go through a period of suffering that results in my death, but then I have confidence that I'm going to come out on the other side of my death perfectly restored in health and wholeness. So he's going to restore us. The second thing he's going to do for us, his second intention is to confirm us. He's going to make us fast, as in steadfast. He's going to support us. When you go through suffering and you come out on the other side, there is a dynamic that happens in you where you know that you know that you know that you are God's child. And you know that you know that you know your eternal destiny is set in the Lord. 
That's the work of the Lord here. The third thing, the third promise here that we need to choose to believe is that God will strengthen us. He's going to strengthen us. Now, what does this mean? He's going to make us tough. He's going to make us durable. As we go through the battles, we get hardened in a good sense. That's God's purpose. To make us tough, to make us strong. I often quote Robert Schuller, uh, the American pastor who's gone to be with the Lord many years ago. Uh, he was the first big tele-evangelist in many respects. Uh, he set up something called the Crystal Cathedral in California. Uh, I'm not you know, a, a completely big fan of Robert Schuller, but I love what he said. Uh, and he'd say this almost every Sunday. He'd come out uh, and he, he'd come out and he says, Tough times never last, but tough people do. I just love that. Well, it just really, obviously, it really stuck with me. And that's what God's doing. He's making us into tough people as we go through the tough times so that we will last, so that we will have durability. So the promise is that we have to believe he's going to restore us, he's going to confirm us, he's going to strengthen us, and finally he's going to establish us. He is going to put us on a firm foundation that nothing can wash away. It's the same kind of idea where, uh, where Jesus said, you know, the wise man built his house on a rock, the foolish man built his house on the sand. Well, the idea of building your house on the rock that's what God is doing. He's building your house, our house together, on the rock that suffering and difficulty and floods will not sweep it away. And we have to believe these things. And believing these things, I tell you, if you're going through suffering, it's not something you're going to feel like doing. But believing these things is a choice that we can make in the power of the Holy Spirit. A choice we can make in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we must humble ourselves. We must resist these enemies of faith. We must be clear-headed, clear-minded, and resist making Satan too big and God too small. And we must choose to believe that God's intentions toward us are good, and that he will indeed restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And as we do this, we will be firm in our faith, and that will take us through the times of suffering that we will have. This will help us to ensure that we grow in faith through our suffering, that as, as we experience suffering and endure our faith will grow. And in addition, our faith is also what will take us through suffering to emerge victorious in Jesus Christ. It really is true that a church with people who are not afraid to suffer, a church with people who remain firm in their faith in the midst of suffering, is a church that cannot be defeated. And that is God's desire for us, and that is God's intention for us. But that intention certainly starts with a real commitment, a real surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
we have to surrender ourselves completely and say, God, I am yours. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and transform me into a new creation. We need that encounter with God's Spirit. Otherwise, we can't walk by faith. But then we need to say, God, fill me with this faith, this kind of faith that will take me through suffering to emerge victorious. And in the end, we can have confidence because we follow a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did just that. He told his disciples the suffering that he was going to endure. He told them what was going to happen. And he told them that there was going to be a resurrection. And indeed, everything he told them came to pass. Just as he said it would. And therefore, we can have confidence that everything God has told us will come to pass as we embrace this faith and go through suffering, trusting in God his goodness and his good intentions for us, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and following the example of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you and we honor you. And Lord, we thank you that you give us the ability to go through suffering. I pray, Father, as we worship you, that you would increase our faith as we are focusing on you. No matter what we're going through at the moment, no matter the kind of suffering that we're we're enduring ourselves, some of which maybe other people don't know or understand, but we know that you know it and you understand it. Lord, let let it drive us closer together And let it drive us closer to you. And help us to remain steady and faithful. Established, strengthened, confirmed, restored. To your glory and praise. We love you and we worship you and thank you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.